there. Uh, to be at the dinner and to be approached by people with whom we labored in Amsterdam, uh, to have former students come and reintroduce themselves to us, to have a son and a daughter-in-law all the way from Dallas, Texas, uh, to have so many of you come and encourage me in the ministry that God has given to me, and then to sit under the giftedness of a person like Diana. And I thank God for that song that he gave to her that she shared with us. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, where tonight we will wrap up the section to which we have devoted two weeks, Mark 1.14 through 3.6. And because it's been two weeks since we have met, let me remind you of the note on which we brought our study to a conclusion two weeks ago. It was the note of the disturbing presence of Jesus. We become very comfortable with Jesus. We feel as if we can pray, dear Jesus, and of course we can. We know something of the tenderness of the heart of God through the person of the Lord Jesus. But we often forget that when he appeared in the midst of men and women and young people like ourselves, there was a sense of alarm because he brought forward a message which could not be ignored that polarized people. You had to deal with the person of Jesus. And you were either prepared to listen to the message of the kingdom of God that had drawn near in the sense that it was the next thing on God's redemptive calendar and in the sense that it was embodied in the person of Jesus himself. Or you had to be prepared to be left behind. We found that Jesus causes alarm, disruption, disturbance, and we saw it as he entered into Galilee and his message was summarized at the time, the critical moment, the moment that's pregnant with significance is now upon us. That the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. And the only thing that has changed is the presence of Jesus in the midst of men and women like ourselves. Nothing else was different. But here was a message that compelled attention. The one new factor was the presence of Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God drawn near. Now, who is this one who proclaims God's readiness to exercise his sovereign authority? It is the one who embodies that authority. We have had experiences in our own life in which we are face to face with a person who is clothed with authority. And we're both attracted and repelled. We're attracted because we don't often have this experience. But we're repelled 
because we know something is being asked of us that we may or may not be prepared to give. Jesus was like that. Who is this one who on the shore called for others to enter into the task of fishing? When in the scriptures of the Old Covenant, fishing is always associated with the activity of God, and it is always a judgment theme. It is God who is going to put the hook in the mouth. It is God who is calling for fishers to bring men and women into the valley of decision. Why, it was Jesus, the Lord, who calls for fishers to catch men and women in this very generation. And who is this one who alarms those who gather in the house of worship? As Jesus enters the synagogue in Capernaum, and he was teaching, only there was a difference. His authority was not based on a great train, a chain of tradition. Why, well, I've heard it said in the name of Hillel, who learned it from Simeon ben Shetak who traced his lineage back to the men of the great synagogue, and then some statement. But here was one who taught with authority. And suddenly, men and women like ourselves discovered what we had called the sanctuary, the safe place, was no longer safe. Because God was there, confronting us. And there was no place to hide. In that synagogue, there was a demoniac, a person, the center of whose personality had been taken control of by demonic spirits. And those demonic spirits were unable to stand before the mighty authority of the Lord Jesus. And the people were alarmed. They were filled with amazement. And they said, who is this? that even the demons are subject to him. And in their amazement, you hear the word of disturbance. I'm convinced that because Jesus has come, everything is different now. Everything. My relationship to my wife, to my children, to my friends to those God has given me as sons and daughters, but also to the stranger, to the person who approaches me for the first time, to the person I pass in the streets. Everything is different. And that calls for radical decision. And our word radical comes from the Latin radix, which means root. It is a decision that goes to the root of the matter. And every one of us who has acknowledged the lordship of the Lord Jesus knows that the root of our lives is Jesus and his commitment to us and the commitment he calls from us. And as for those fishermen, those business partners with their dad, in a business that was flourishing enough so that Zebedee had been able to hire others to work for him. Why, when that incident is over, Zebedee is in the boat 
with his mouth wide open as he sees his business partners walking off. You see, Jesus calls for radical obedience, and that's what was remembered about that incident. The brevity of his word, come, follow me, and the immediacy of the action, and they rose up and followed him. And as for the sanctuary, why, if there is no safe place where I can hide from the person of Jesus, that calls for radical openness. Openness to whatever God wishes to do with us. Openness in terms of all that the Spirit of God is doing by way of adjusting us and getting us ready for the presence of God. I've shared with Brenda and with some others that one of the very good results of that horrible blood cancer that flows through my body is I am more tender before the presence of God and the Word of God than I have ever been in my life. And as I say those words, I look upon a man whose heart arteries were clogged and who came this close to being ushered into the presence of the Lord two weeks after he had been married. We understand God calls for radical openness and it is the person of Jesus that is the focus for that. So the whole point was you have to deal with Jesus. And that was so important for Christians in Rome who were facing the oppression of a government gone demonic. But I want to say it is equally relevant to you and I in our own generation. For we live in the midst of a people who give very little thought to the person of Jesus. Neighbors, business people with whom we deal, the merchants, Many in authority who have wanted to see this congregation removed from Franklin because of the disturbing presence that it represents. A hundred and fifty or so Christians in Rome were given responsibility for a city of one and a half million people. Should not a hundred and fifty, two hundred, 300 people, 4,000 people be responsible for a city of 29,000. And for Brentwood and Nashville and Murfreesboro and all of the communities around us. Scotty reminded us last, reminded us last Wednesday that our purpose is from Franklin to the nations of the world. And I applaud that. But let's not forget Franklin, and let's not forget all of the adjacent communities, and let's not forget it isn't up to the pastoral staff. It's not up to the members of the session. It's up to every one of us. That's what the disturbing presence of Jesus is all about, because we'd like to go on with our lives. We'd like not to be disturbed. 
but Jesus will not permit that. Now what is new in the passage is encapsulized for us in Mark 1, 35 to 39, and I call your attention to it. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. When they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to a nearby village, so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This passage brings us into the devotional life of our Lord. And it's so interesting to focus on one gospel at a time. Not to assume, because we have listened to Luke, that we know about the prayer life of Jesus. Or because we have listened to Matthew or John, that we know a great deal about the prayer life of Jesus. For each of the evangelists saw an aspect of the devotional life of Jesus that he brought to our attention, and Mark is no different. What is remarkable about the Gospel of Mark and its attention to the prayer life of Jesus is that Jesus is shown in prayer on only three occasions. He is in prayer at the beginning of his ministry according to this passage in Mark 1, 35-39. He is in prayer at the mature point of his Galilean ministry in chapter 6, 45 to 47, where he prays alone in the wilderness. And he is in prayer at the end of his public ministry in Gethsemane, an event about which we know a great deal. So the beginning, the middle, and the end, we see Jesus in prayer. But on only three occasions does Mark call our attention to that. Contrast the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is in prayer at virtually every turning point in his life. When he is in the waters of baptism, he is praying. Before he chooses the twelve, he spends a whole night in prayer. He teaches about prayer. The disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray meaning John the Baptist. Before he gives the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus spends the night in prayer, and so it goes. We know Jesus as a man of prayer through the pages of the Gospel of Luke, but have we ever listened to the witness of the Gospel of Mark about Jesus in prayer? I'd like to suggest to you that Mark's depiction of Jesus in prayer is of prayer as engagement, as wrestling. And what is remarkable about 
those three incidents of Jesus in prayer is that they have recurring characteristics that we can identify. One of the distinctive terms of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus turns to prayer after what you and I would call great success. And we see it in chapter 1. By following that incident in the synagogue where the demons were subject to Jesus and he had talked with such authority, that evening it seemed as if all of Capernaum was gathered outside the house of Peter and Andrew. Were they ever excited? Isn't this what Jesus wanted? A whole community had come together. Imagine if up on 709 West Main Street, where we make our home, all of Franklin seemed to be gathered there. Wouldn't that be exciting? What great success! Or if they were located outside the door to our sanctuary, every entrance, it seemed as if the whole city was filling the parking lot. Everybody wanted to get in. Everybody wanted to hear the word. Isn't that what we're praying for? Great success. And Peter saw. And he was so excited. Now, I'm not sure he was equally excited when in chapter 2, 1 through 12, there were four friends of a paralyzed man who went up on the steps to the flat roof of Peter's house and dug through the mud and lowered that man down because the roof was ruined. I'm not sure he had the same excitement, but that night he was very excited. It was great success. And think of the great success before Jesus prays at the mature middle of his ministry. There was the feeding of the 5,000. Do you know that that's the one miracle of Jesus that's repeated in all four Gospels? That was 5,000 men. Not to speak of the women and the children. You talk about great success? Why, John tells us in John 6.15, they wanted to take Jesus and crown him, make him king. And when you read the account of Mark, it's so interesting because Jesus abruptly dismisses the crowd. He compels the disciples to get in the boat and put out on the lake. And he himself withdraws to prayer. Great success. And how about Gethsemane? Why we read of Jesus debating in Jerusalem with the biblical scholars, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the leaders of the people, and always coming out on top. And we read the people were delighted with him. And in Mark fourteen forty one, I was with you every day teaching the people. Great success. And Jesus turns to prayer. That's the first characteristic. The second is this. Jesus withdraws to what Mark calls an erimas papas, a wilderness place. 
that's so interesting. Because the area around Capernaum was marvelously fertile, and that area was an area of great farms, great landed estates. I don't think if you did a geological survey in the area around the tip of the Sea of Galilee, that southern tip where Capernaum is located, you could have found a square yard that you and I would have said desert. Not a square yard. But when Mark describes in chapter 1, verse 35, where Jesus went, the NIV says he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Because the translators know there were no wilderness areas in Capernaum, but they miss Mark's point. It was a wilderness place, a distinctly Markan phrase. No one else uses it unless they're following Mark. Matthew and Luke use this phrase only when Mark is their source. Mark wants you to catch it. He turns to a place that evokes, that calls forth what happened in the wilderness. And in that middle incident, where we read that Jesus led his disciples into an Arimas Tapas, a wilderness place. There he called them to rest. And the people followed them. And they go into a Arimas Tapas, a wilderness place. And there Jesus gives them rest in the wilderness. It may have been the actual wilderness. The area of Berea, where Herod Antipas was the governor. And then Gethsemane. A orchard, an olive orchard, located on the mountains around Bethphage and Bethany, and part of the Sabbath walk within the area of Jerusalem. It was a wilderness place, and Jesus turns to prayer. So that's the second characteristic of Mark, as that Mark gives to us as he talks about Jesus in prayer. It followed what you and I would call great success. Jesus turns to prayer in a wilderness place. And the third characteristic, he always prays in the night or while it is yet dark. And he always prays alone. Hear it in the record itself. We read in Mark one thirty-five. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a wilderness place where he prayed. And it is so clear that the disciples had to search diligently to find him. For Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they finally found him, they exclaimed, What on earth are you doing here? Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else to the next village that I might preach. Why? 
why? Because God did not send Jesus into the world to heal as many persons as possible. He doesn't, he's not the God of the magic wand who waves the wand and now heart surgery is no longer necessary. But Phil, it's no longer going to be necessary to get your EPO shots and to see your oncologist once a month. To get blood transfusions, no longer necessary. Jesus knew that the world will always bow down to a master healer. But he had come to preach about the kingdom of God that had been To call men and women to repentance. To believe the heart of God for the whole human family to believe the good news. He turns away from what you and I would call great success because he gave himself to prayer and returned to what called forth the wilderness. And that middle incident, Mark 6, 45 and following, we read after Jesus abruptly dismissed the crowd. He himself went up into the mountain and he gave himself to prayer. And about midnight, at the height of the darkness of the night, he looked out upon the waters and he saw his disciples oiling in the midst of the storm. And he came walking on the water to them. See, he prays at night, and he certainly prays alone. In Gethsemane, you know the Passover meal ends at midnight. In John 14, 31, we read it, Arise and let us go from here. That was midnight. In Mark, we read, they sang a hymn, and they went forth. Why, it was the last of the Hallel sounds. Psalm 113 to 118. You sing the first three before the Passover meal. You sing the last three when the whole evening is over. They sang the last of the Hallel sounds, and they went forth. It was midnight. And Jesus goes to the orchard, to the olive press to the place of trusting. And you know, he prayed alone. Now there's a great misunderstanding about Gethsemane. You may have heard it developed in effective preaching. That Jesus upon his spirit and he wanted to be supported. And that's why he called Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, to be with him. And when they fell asleep, he says, couldn't you watch and pray for one hour? He is so disappointed not to have their support. I want to say to you, he never had their support. He never enjoyed what I have enjoyed in being supported by sons and daughters who have cared deeply. 
He never had the close friendship you and I depend upon. He didn't say to James and John, come apart and pray with me. He said, come apart and give yourself prayer, lest you enter into temptation. And what is temptation? It is the desire to be untrue to God. Why these three? Because of the boldness of what they had said. Peter and Jesus said, all of you will abandon me this night. But I don't care about the rest. I'll tell you one thing. There's one man who will never abandon you. Isn't it easy to say that? Isn't it difficult to have integrity in your life that validates it at every moment? What about James and John? They had asked for the chief seats. The place on the right, the place on the left. It never occurred to them that when Jesus went to Jerusalem, the place on the right and the place on the left were occupied by Roman crosses. Jesus said, can you drink from my cup? Can you be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? And they blithefully said, we are able to do that. Good thing, Jesus says, because you will drink from my cup, you will be baptized with my baptism. But he knew they were not ready for that. And what's the end of the Gethsemane account? They all, they abandoned Jesus. Now let's put it together. Following what you and I call great success. Jesus turns to prayer, and he goes to a wilderness place. Because it called to his heart and mind. What had taken place in the wilderness, as we saw in the prologue to the Gospel of Mark. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to say he will do the will of God. He will let the judgment of God fall upon himself. He will bear the judgment that should have fallen upon us. And sonship, daughtership will be renewed in the wilderness. And Jesus turned to prayer to say it's not the applause of men and women that I desire, Father. It's to do your will. I don't want the crown apart from the cross. That's always the essence of the temptation to be untrue to God. You can have it all, Scott. It's not going to cost you a thing. So only bow down and worship me, Stephen says. Jesus turned to pray to say, Father, I have come to do your will. And nothing will deflect me from You see, we don't usually think of prayer as engagement. But what was Jesus engaging? He was engaging the evil one. He was engaging Satan. 
Satan who offered so much and can deliver so little. And he wrestles with what radical obedience, radical openness, what radical commitment is about exactly what you and I must wrestle. How can you see the relevance of this to Christians in Rome? It was a frightening thing to hear the tramp of a troop of soldiers stopping outside your door, knowing they had come to arrest you, to parade you, cross in front of a magistrate, and to humiliate you in one form or another, but most notably in death. Because you, Christian, the government had turned demonic. And Mark, through the depiction of Jesus in prayer, is calling for the Christian Rome to wrestle with radical openness, radical obedience, radical commitment. In the face of a government that's gone demonic. What about us? Much more No troop of soldiers are waiting outside that door to arrest me or you. No police cars are surrounding this building because we gather for Bible study. No one's going to break in on Scotty or Clyde or Scott or Mike when they're preaching on the Lord's Day, bursting through the doors. Temptation to be untrue to God is as real for you and for me as it was for every Christian in Where do you get the backbone for Jesus? Where do you get the courage? Where is the mindset and a kingdom vision birthed? It isn't birthed in simply being a spectator on the pews. In the pews, it is birthed in prayer. As we affirm in prayer, Father, we have to do do with me. Do with us what you will. Father, what do you want to do in this place? But do your thing, not ours. Do your Thanks for the privilege of being a part of being able to witness it, of being in the midst of it, of being caught up in it. What a vision of the devotional life for every one of us. And that's what Mark wanted to communicate to us. Now, very briefly, the account of Jesus meeting up with a leper is a great transitional account from a day in the life of Jesus to five instances of conflict with all sorts of people that are narrated for us in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3. 
verse 6. Conflicting When we read that account of Jesus and the leper in Mark 1, 40 to 45, we have to remember what the people were being taught in the synagogues as the rabbis expounded the word of God. And what we discover is that they said, it is as difficult to cleanse a leper as it is to raise the dead. Now we can invert that. Go forth this evening and raise the dead. In other words, they were saying it doesn't happen. But that leper cried out to the one person who was capable of making the leper clean. Now there is an important textual variant you won't find in the footnote to the New International Version translation of this account. In fact, when the NIV came out, I had worked on it in terms of the team responsible for the Gospel of John. But the head editorial team knew that I had produced a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. So they sent me the pages of Mark and said, tell us what you can't live with. And I told them I couldn't live with the fact that there was an important textual variant in Mark 141 to which they paid no attention whatsoever. They ignored me as well. <laughs> What you have to know about texts is that there are families of ancient texts. And one of the families is a text that emerged in North Africa, in Italy, and in southern France, what we would call at that time Gaul. It is the so-called Western text. The dominant, the majority reading is that filled with compassion, Jesus said, be clean. Boy, that makes excellent sense to us. Jesus is the compassionate one. And he says to the leper, with a heart of compassion, be made clean. But Mark knew that Jesus had deep human emotions just as you and I do. And the Western text preserves a textual variant that says Jesus moved with indignation, said to the leper, You can even hear it if you don't know any Greek at all. Filled with compassion, splunk in this things. Filled with anger or indignation, or all it is is a change of a few letters. But I dare say to you, if you are a scribe copying a biblical manuscript, I can understand you finding a reference to indignation in Jesus and conforming it to the dominant witness that Jesus was always filled with compassion. But I can't imagine you being a biblical scribe, 
and finding a reference to compassion and you changing it filled with indignation. I am absolutely convinced the Western text in this point is the correct one. Why was Jesus filled with indignation? Because he saw what the invasion of death in the midst of life did on the life of this one person who was typical of so many lepers in that day. He was indignant that the image of God had been so badly marred. We could turn away as if this was a monster, not a man at all. And he was filled with indignation. And after the man had been remarkably made clean, Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest who had to pronounce that a great work of God had indeed been done. And the translation is as a witness to them. No, no. It was not as a witness to the priest. It was as a witness against them. Because if they accepted God had done something remarkable that no one could do through the hands of Jesus, and yet turned their backs on Jesus and the message of the kingdom drawn near when they stood before the throne of God, that incident would be a witness against them. Now Jesus said to the leper, don't tell anyone what has happened. Why? Because he knew what would happen. His ministry would be disrupted. You read he couldn't enter any village or town because as soon as we heard Jesus is on Route 96, boy, quick, get the sick, get the demon possessed, get the lepers, get him out there, because all we're interested in are the benefactions of his hands and not the heart of his message, the kingdom. And you and I have to ask ourselves about us. What about me? Do I really want a kingdom? Do we as a congregation want a kingdom? Do we as a very mixed bag of people really want to buy into a kingdom vision? But Jesus was in a wilderness place because he couldn't enter, enter any town because all people could think about was the benefactor of his hands. Now, what follows is a series of five conflicts that took place in Galilee. That isn't the whole story by any means. Five representative conflicts, balanced by five more that will be found in Jerusalem. Representative conflicts, but what are they all about? It's not necessary to go into the detail of every one of those conflicts. But they're really about the segmenting of life. That comes so clear in chapter 3, 1 to 5, where it was the Sabbath. And in the congregation there was a man who had a paralyzed hand. Jesus 
surrounded by the biblical scholars of his day, knowing what their interpretation of the Sabbath was all about, said to the man, stretch out your hand, and it became whole. And they filled with a hardness of heart against Jesus, and we read, Matthew and Luke never tell us that Jesus looked at them and he was filled with anger. Why? Because they said life. The Sabbath, that belonged to God. Six other days, that belongs to us. You get the point? Jesus is not like STP, an additive to life. He is the essence of life. And the problem with American Christianity and with our generation is, and we in the South especially, is we inoculate people with Jesus. So they never catch him. And I wonder if Jesus ever looks at us. Or gaze. With anger. Now those conflicts were sufficient so that two factions, a religious faction, the Pharisees, a political faction, the Herodians, came and they pooled their wisdom how they might put Jesus but I dare say to you, the segmenting of life is not simply their problem, it is ours. And radical radical obedience, radical openness is about putting Jesus as the very of everything that we are for God. In that spirit, join me in. Father God, teach us to turn away from what we so often regard as great success. And to come into your presence and affirm we have come to do your will. That nothing is more important to us. If we must pray at night and pray alone, enter into the realm where Satan has his power, let us do it. And let it be the wilderness where sonship, where daughtership is renewed and we become the sons and the daughters of the living God in such a way that the radiance of our faces cannot be hidden. And everyone who sees us will ask, Why are you so happy? Why is there such a brilliant light in your eyes? Keep us, Father, from the easy segmentation of life that would allow us to take Jesus and put him in a little box on our knees. 
rather than recognizing he is Lord of glory. The Lord of our lives. The very center point of life is for each one of us. And make us a force for you in this generation. Because you birth within us a kingdom vision which cannot be strengthened. I pray this in the powerful of Jesus Christ, the authoritative Amen. You are.